Hi everyone, Dan Cassidy here. Welcome back to the Washington Weekly Podcast on the UBS In The Now Podcast channel. Our conversation today will bring you up to speed on a range of developments within the Beltway and beyond. Uh, Joining us once again for the conversation, glad to welcome back Shane Lieberman, Federal Affairs Manager with the UBS U.S. Office of Public Policy in Washington, D.C. Shane, great to be back with you. Looking forward to catching up. A lot to cover today. Thanks, Dan. Good to be with you. So, Shane, since we last spoke, and I know over the past probably months at this point, we've been talking about the coverage, the lead-up to the U.S. midterm elections in November. This past week, voters in New Hampshire, Delaware, Rhode Island, uh, they went to the polls. Anything notable in the way of takeaways from these races, these results that might inform how November might shape up? The first thing for me is that this is the end of primary season. Um, these are the last primaries to be held. And in, and in fact, in just about a week, we're starting the real election season with uh, Minnesota uh, being the first state to start early voting uh, on Friday, September 23rd. So we're now transitioning to the general election. So congratulations to everyone for surviving the primary season. Um, notable things in these elections for me were a couple things. Uh, in Rhode Island, uh, Republicans are very excited about a, a gentleman named Alan Fung running for uh, Congress and think he has a great chance of winning. Um, you know, that would be a, a huge uh, plus for Republicans to gain a seat in Rhode Island and make inroads back into New England, where they used to have a fair amount of um, representation. And right now they stand at uh, nothing. So, um, you know, that is a race I'm going to be watching this fall. In New Hampshire, I think uh, what I really noticed was the, you know, the Trump candidates winning their primaries for the Republicans. And this is going to put Republicans in a, a tough chance for the fall um, to, to win the, the general election, notably in the New Hampshire Senate race, which, you know, if Republicans are able to win that, that would be a very good election night um, for Republicans and their, their prospects of taking over the Senate. Um, the Trump-backed candidate, um, you know, really, um, you know, shifts that Senate seat uh, back towards Democrats. I think it's more likely than not than Repo- that Democrats will retain that seat now. Um, so, you know, this probably overall is not great news for Republicans and their uh, prospects of winning back the Senate. Um, you know, and I would I would say that um, you know we we joined our uh, colleagues in CIO and their election watch piece and um, have uh, recently prognosticated that we think uh, Senate Republicans have about a twenty five percent chance of uh, taking over the Senate. Thank you for sharing some takeaways from this week's races and with primaries behind us. I'm sure as we're making our way deeper into the fall now, we'll start to see more lawn signs and political ads in heavy rotation on TVs across the country, but more conversations to come with the lead up to the election in November. I do want to turn to geopolitics a bit. A couple of topics here we can hit on, maybe beginning with a press conference delivered on Tuesday this week from John Kirby. Our listeners might know John Kirby. Kirby from his time at the Pentagon, though now he serves on the White House National Security Council. Uh, He's touched on a range of topics ranging from Eastern Europe to Pakistan, among others. Any notable takeaways from the press conference you can share with us, Shane? Yeah, as you can imagine, um, focus one, two, and three here was Russia, right? Um, So that was the bulk of questions. But you're absolutely right. You know, um, the the flooding in Pakistan was a topic. 
Uh, one that caught my attention was um, Chinese buying homes near military installations in the U.S. And, you know, John Kirby, this is the one question that I really saw him kind of deflect and defer on. Um, and he was trying to say, I'm not the person to talk about home ownership in the United States. And that really wasn't the question. It was about, you know, national security. Um, but the White House kind of punted that aside and said, we'll get back to you later on this. So this is going to be an issue I think I follow. And you're seeing um, Republican senators um, pick up on this and show some, you know, interest and concern about this. So this is some an issue I'm actually greatly interested about and see how it's going to play out in the in the coming uh, months and years. Um, but, you know, on, on um, Russia, you know, uh, John Kirby did note that, you know, we're seeing a shift in momentum uh, with uh, Ukraine, you know, taking back um, some, some cities in the eastern part of Ukraine from Russia. Um, so this is, you know, uh, um, I wouldn't say, a, you know, a game changer, but it's definitely a shift in momentum. And, and uh, John Kirby absolutely commented on that. Um, and then uh, he finished off, actually, with a question about uh, Taiwan and the administration's stance there. You know, he, he, was, he was trying not to break new ground, but it was him reiterating, you know, the U.S.'s cooperation with Taiwan to, to some extent to push back on uh, Chinese influence in the region. So um, that is obviously going to be a huge issue to follow on geopolitics uh, as well. Yeah, quite a few points of interest there, Shane, we can follow up on. Another geopolitical topic I wanted to follow up on, we covered this last week. Uh, this is involving Russian President Vladimir Putin, as well as Chinese Premier Xi Jinping. Meeting in Uzbekistan, the Kremlin did describe this particular summit as a means to show the world an alternative to the Western world, which I thought was interesting. What is the significance of this summit, and have we heard any takeaways of what was covered in the meeting between Vladimir Putin and Xi Jinping. Yeah, I think it's important to take a step back and remember that this isn't just a meeting between um, Russia and China. I, I think there's over a dozen nations there, you know, um, representing three billion people. You know, India is there, but India and China alone are over two billion people. So um, I think this is Russia trying to flex her muscle a little bit. Um, you know, and and show that there is, you know, another way, we'll say, versus the West. Um, you know, and and China, you know, is uh, approaching this somewhat cautious, cautiously. You know, um, they are aware that of the greater significance that, um, um, you know, fully joining Russia uh, uh, has for them. They're very concerned about, uh, being sanctioned not only by the U.S., but the West for getting further involved. And at this point, you have not seen them commit any uh, military or weapons to um, uh, to Russia to back them up. They are, you know, doing some things economically and, and buying gas, et cetera. So, you know, China is very cautious. But to Russia's point, this is important enough that I think this is the first time since covid uh, reared its head that uh, Xi Jinping has left China. So this is really um, Russia trying to, um, you know, play up that and show what an alliance uh, there is between all these nations and, you know, three billion um, uh, people living on the planet. So, you know, I, I, I think it's not as great as Russia is trying to portray uh, the unity there because, 
you do have some other spats going on. Obviously, you know, Pakistan and India have a long time um, uh, uh, feud over over their borders. So, you know, uh, it's not a kumbaya moment. I'm going to be very interested to see how they kind of finish this up and package it and try and, you know, say that they're all on the same page. But it's going to be tough because where are the areas of agreement uh, between all of them? So I think they're going to try and focus on, you know, uh, economic and trade initiatives, um, but they may be hard-pressed to uh, go further than that. Okay, some interesting takeaways there. Thank you, Shane, for the clarity of the context around the summit. Maybe one more topic we can hit on. So this is coming back stateside, which we've covered here on the podcast before. Uh, The first abortion ban since the overturning of Roe v. Wade did take effect on Wednesday, I believe, in the state of Indiana. Uh, This while Senator Lindsey Graham, Republican of South Carolina, introduced a bill to ban abortion nationwide. Can you speak, Shane, a bit to the parameters of Senator Graham's proposal and how that might evolve from here. Yeah, so his proposal would be a, a, a ban on abortions after six, 15 weeks, but it would allow for exceptions for, you know, rape and incest. Um, and I think he somewhat viewed this as trying to find the middle ground. Uh, to him, this was, you know, acknowledging um, that, you know, you have this decision by the Supreme Court and states are going off in different directions. Um, but maybe t- I think to him it was to try and settle a few different issues. You know, um, we're hearing about different states not allowing for um, abortion in cases of rape and incest, so I think he was trying to um, provide that minimum bar on the federal level. But, you know, at the end of the day, this was not welcome news by most Republicans. Uh, Most Republicans at this point would rather be talking about, you know, gas prices, inflation in the economy um, than abortion right now. Uh, Abortion is... Uh, an issue that has been helping uh, Democrats these past few weeks. Um, and we've seen that not only in polling, but at uh, actual polls and uh, elections. So, you know, I think our Republicans are largely trying to move on and stick to uh, the issues uh, that they see are the issues of the day, you know, like the economy. Um, and so, you know, I think this, the, the prospects of Senator Graham's uh, legislation moving forward are, are next to nil right now. Um, and the part of that is, you know, one, Republicans being not in power in either the House or Senate, but two, Republicans generally are shying away from the issue and trying to, 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 to not let it weigh them down uh, this election season. Shane, thank you for the takeaways, the highlights there, and for covering all of the ground that you did with our listeners, our clients, on this week's Washington Weekly podcast. As is usually the case, a lot here to follow up on in the weeks to come, so looking forward to having you back soon to pick back up with our conversation. Great. Thank you for having me, Dan, and I look forward to catching up with you next time. Great. Thank you, Shane. Again, today we've been joined by Shane Lieberman, Federal Affairs Manager with the UBS U.S. Office of Public Policy in Washington, D.C. I do want to point out to our listeners, our clients of UBS, that you can locate the latest edition of the Washington Weekly Publication available for you up on UBS.com forward slash Washington Weekly. From UBS Studios, I'm Dan Cassidy. Thank you for joining us. 
As a firm providing wealth management services to clients, UBS Financial Services, Inc. offers investment advisory services in its capacity as an SEC-registered investment advisor and brokerage services in its capacity as an SEC-registered broker-dealer. Investment advisory services and brokerage services are separate and distinct, differ in material ways, and are governed by different laws and separate arrangements. It is important that you understand the ways in which we conduct business and that you carefully read the agreement and disclosures that we provide to you about the products or services we offer. For more information, please review Client Relationship Summary provided at UBS.com forward slash Relationship Summary or ask your UBS Financial Advisor for a copy. 